1: This episode was sponsored by Fair Anita. Fair Anita offers fair trade products ethically sourced from 8,000 plus women in nine countries across the world. They're on a mission to create a world where women feel safe, valued, and respected no matter their geography. Their jewelry, clothing, bags, and more are always created in ethical working conditions. Fair Anita. Cute, ethical, affordable. This episode is also sponsored by our Patreon supporters Jessica Smith, Jan Elise Cannon, Juniper, Rachel Kay, Tracy Steeb, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Carla Sanchez, Valerie Jacobson, Heather McKinnon, Chantelle Oliver, Tasmane Weir, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Eugene Lewis, and Carrie Sheldon. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. I just found the most amazing childcare facility. Oh. It sounds absolutely perfect, ideal. It's really dedicated to fostering independence in the children, letting them pursue their own interests while also encouraging them to broaden out their horizons. They have a huge variety of activities and stations and centers where kids can do what they want to do during the free time, then also some really structured activities. Hmm? They have a qualified nutritionist on staff. Wow. Who plans all of the meals. They're all extremely nutritionally balanced and healthy and appealing to children. Cool. All of the outdoor activities are approved for safety and health building for children (laughs) and also fun. Wow. They are really invested in emotional development of the children, building resilience. Teachers are all highly qualified, and they actually have weekly professional development on-site paid for the faculty. Dang! They have at least a 1 to 10 teacher-to-student ratio for children over 3, and from 18 months to 3, it's a 5 to (laughs) 1. They have medical staff on-site- you are describing a utopia. Right? This is the perfect <laughs> yeah. child care center. The dream. Yeah, this is the the peak bolder hipster parent rich person That's, child care. Yep. Uh, I was going to say and tuition must cost 50,000 per year. <laughs> um actually it's free. Uh sign me up. And it's a child care center provided by the kaiser shipyards what in
2: 1945
1: oh, uh, what there's a lot of things in that sentence that don't make sense right now right yes exactly so, <laughs> the kaiser shipyards uh-huh. first of all we think of kaiser as healthcare uh, but i'm, I'm thinking visit- of kaiser as in the leader of germany oh no <laughs> in 1940s <laughs> no so this is what will become kaiser permanente healthcare company okay but was at that point a shipyard's Where? In Portland, Oregon? Ah. And the woman who created this child care utopia was named Lois Meeks Stoltz. She is one of the true pioneers of modern education and child development. And unless you are a professor of education, you have probably never heard her name. Hmm. I'm Olivia Mickle, And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Now, as you said, I am jealous of this child care center. Yeah. This would be... If you could find this now, I mean, this is the absolute utopian dream. I would... Of every working parent. Yeah. I would seek out that job... So that I could bring my kids to work with me. It, well, then it worked. That was the goal. Ah. It's World War II. Shipyard's wildly important. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the men are off fighting a war and not available to work. And the shipyard really needs to recruit women. Mm. And they need these women to stay. Yep. And the head of Kaiser... Knew that one of the main problems for why women were not available to work <laughs> was childcare. <laughs> How about that? And he decided maybe we solved this problem. Mm. Luckily for all of those children and for society in general, he decided that he was going to consult some experts. Now, 1940s. Psychology is really gaining ground at this point, right, of course, and child development is beginning to be a thing that people notice exists Mm. and perhaps should be paid attention to. Perhaps because of one of our previous Uh, uh, What's-Her-Name-Women. Sabinish Bilrein, exactly. Yes, who said, hey, maybe the inner life of children is something that we should perhaps do some research into. (laughs) So at this point, we're we're just barely starting to get with that idea. And education is kind of at this turning point between the traditional, in quotation marks, form of education that has ruled the American scene for a century, mm-hmm. which is sitting silently at desks being lectured, right? Right. It's starting to shift a little as people start to wonder, hey... How do children's brains work? <laughs> Is there a better way to do this? So, the head of Kaiser brought in one of the most prominent experts on child development in the United States, Lois Meek Stoltz, and the world would never be the same. To learn more about Lois Meek Stoltz, I talked to Elizabeth Moore who is a historian and director of programming at the Jewish Women's Archive.
0: My name is Elizabeth Moore. I'm a historian of women and gender in the United States in the 20th century. My research focus is on the history of work and motherhood.
1: Lois Meek Stoltz was born in Washington, D.C. in
0: 1891. She grew up in Washington, D.C., and attended George Washington University. She then went to Teachers College of Columbia University. And her entire life, she was interested in child development, and she approached it from different perspectives as her career proceeded.
1: In my last episode, we talked a little bit about how sometimes someone's life trajectory is very clear from birth, and they're identifiably who they are going to be from early childhood. That is not the case here. Lois Meek's life trajectory was not obvious to anyone. Maybe most especially to herself. (laughs)
2: Lois
1: Meek Stoltz did an interview for the Stanford Oral History Project in the 1970s, and she talked about her own dearest ambition as a young woman, which was to attend finishing school.
2: Ah, I was a very social person mm-hmm. and my idea was to uh, go to a finishing school and it was I think a two-year finishing school to make uh-huh. young ladies know how to behave in society and my brother had a girl from there who was very beautiful and I thought if I went there I'd become very beautiful too <laughs> and that was where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And my father just put his foot down Mm -hmm. and he said he thought every girl should be able to earn her own living if she had to. And he wanted me to go to normal school in Washington, D.C.
0: Under no circumstances are you going to finishing school, you are going to go to a normal school, which is what teaching colleges were called, because a woman should always be able to support herself if she must.
1: Interesting. 18-year-old Lois was
2: not a fan of this plan. I was furious, and I just hated (laughs) you. And I made up my mind that since I had to do it, I'd just go there and flunk.
1: (laughs) I'll go, (laughs) but if I fail, he has to let me off the hook. That's great. And I can't be a teacher. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of our, our own mom famously refused to learn to type in the 70s because she never wanted to be forced into a secretarial job. Yeah, that's one And way to so do it. she decided, if I don't have the skills, then it won't be an option.
2: <laughs> I sat with a friend of mine who had been a friend in high school mm-hmm. in the uh, last row and I would just write notes to her and draw funny cartoons and and just you know pay no attention to what's going on and finally after a few weeks she said to me Lois I can't sit with you anymore I've got to graduate I have to have a job she said if I sit with you I'll never be able to pass anything so I moved to the front row with her and in the front row, you can't act like that, mm-hmm. and you have to listen, and I began to be interested. And, well, I won't go on in further detail except to say that um, I did graduate from normal school, mm-hmm. number one in my class, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was president of my class, so that both my social <laughs> and intellectual interests were channeled. So... Against her own pledge, she becomes
1: a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And not just any teacher. She's an extraordinary teacher. And she's hired as a model teacher. She is the master teacher that once a month, all of the other teachers come and watch her teach a class as part of their professional development. Hmm, That's cool. This is the turn of the century. Schools look very, very different from what we think about now. And this is the very beginning of the progressive education movement, inquiring into the idea of what actually helps children learn, Hmm. what actually works. And even now, we still know almost nothing about how we actually learn. All of these years later, we have so much still to learn about how any of this works. Sure, the brain is the Great unknown. Yeah, and and we still are doing so many things that we're just doing because we've always done them and no one's ever inquired into, wait, does this actually work? Mm. Is this actually helpful? But this is the peak of the highly regimented, highly authoritarian, teacher lecturing silent students.
2: I had 60 children when I first started the first grade. (laughs) And they all sat in little desks and chairs which were nailed down. Yeah. When they'd go out to recess, you would say, sit. And everybody would sit up straight as a ramrod. <laughs> then you would say, one, and they put their foot out. Two, they rose up and stood up. Three, they turned. And four, they marched out. ...couldn't look right or left until they got out of the door into the playground. But
1: perhaps because she is in this hotbed of progressive education... ...she's studying with John Dewey, who is this famous education reform leader at this time... ...promoting all of these ideas of more child-centric, more experiential education... ...seeing children as individuals instead of little machines to be dumped into... She's starting to question a lot of these things. And she has the training to understand the research and to be participating in this research. She tells this fantastic story in her oral history interview about a little boy named Tony who was still in first grade. He had been in first grade for three years and he couldn't pass the reading level to move on. So he was just going to repeat first grade For the rest of his life, apparently, Mm. because he wasn't making any progress.
2: And all of a sudden, at the top of his lungs, he began reading the boy, you know, but shouting it out. You see, he lived in an Italian family, and they spoke Italian. And I found out that uh, he could read in a pre-primer, not every word, but a great deal of it, if he was allowed to read out loud. This little boy needs space to read
1: aloud, to practice these new words in a language he doesn't speak at home very often, mm. in a verbal environment, and he needs a little extra help catching up to the language acquisition in a different language. Mm. <laughs> Everyone has been casting him as stupid, and he's not stupid. He he's Italian. He has more <laughs> skills. Yes. <laughs> he is going to school in a foreign language environment. Mm -hmm. So she breaks the rules. She sets him up a little mini classroom in the cloakroom
2: where he can read out loud. Hmm. And then I picked out a little girl. She was reading, I think, about the sixth or seventh grade readers. And I had her sit out there with him with the understanding that she would sit there and read silently in her own book. And if Tony wanted a word, he'd ask her. But she was not to help him if he didn't ask her. Cool.
1: She sees the value of individualized education here, of focusing on the needs of children mm-hmm. as individuals, mm-hmm. of seeing the child and not the system. And by the end of the year, he is reading above a third grade level. Yay! Yay! And she not only recognizes what he needs and helps facilitate it, she also recognizes the social consequences of a child being pulled out and stuck in the cloakroom. Yeah. She knows that he's already been branded as stupid and that children are probably going to make fun of him. So when she starts this program, she
2: brings Tony up to the front of the class and explains to the class. Tony could speak Italian, mm-hmm. and we couldn't, any of us, speak Italian. Right. And I'd get him to say some Italian, and then look at him, you know, <laughs> in great admiration. Ah!
1: She has not just solved the educational problem. She has recognized the social problem yeah. and solved that, too. Yeah. None of this is in the teacher handbook. <laughs> None of this is her job, according to the rules of how this works. But she sees what works and does it anyway. And luckily for her, she is in this environment, in this school, in this position of authority, where instead of getting shamed for it or taken into a room and and fired, she's praised. And it starts to shift the policies of the entire school and the entire school district. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Fair Anita. They're on a mission to create a world where women feel safe, valued, and respected, no matter their geography. Faranita offers fair trade products ethically sourced from 8,000 plus women in nine countries across the world. Faranita's bags, jewelry, gifts, scarves, clothes, and more are all made in ethical working conditions. Almost all their products are made from recycled materials, carbon footprint offset, handmade, locally sourced, and beautiful. I am right now wearing this amazing hand stamped bracelet, which says we create ourselves as we go. I love that. Which is my motto for the year.
0: Yeah, wow. Yeah.
1: I'm just really happy to see companies like this where the whole world is connected in the right kinds of ways. We can support artists and makers. Kind of a global circle of sisterhood. These are actual ethical fair trade goods. And almost all of their products are under $20. And they're gorgeous. Use the code HERNAME. All one word and all caps, and you'll get 10% off any order. Farinita.com. Cute, ethical, affordable.
0: So
1: Lois Meek is model teaching in Washington DC, changing the lives of her own students and students throughout the whole district and beyond. And while she's doing all of that, she's also earning another teaching degree from George Washington University in 1921. She's not busy at all. (laughs) And then she goes on to Columbia University, where she earns first master's degree and then a PhD
0: by 1925. After she got her PhD, she traveled the country with the American Association of University Women, studying the movement for progressive education that was in full flower in the late 1920s, studying how these programs were being put into practice all over the country. In 1929, after doing that for five years, she was hired as a professor of education and the associate director of the Child Development Institute at Teachers College in Columbia a year after her appointment, was appointed the director. This coincided, of course, with the onset of the Great Depression. And by the 1930s, there were a number of child care centers that had been set up as part of the Works Progress Administration. That was where she really developed her research chops and grew interested in sociological factors, not just academic factors shaping children's lives and educational development.
1: So it makes sense that in 1945, when the head of Kaiser decides we need to start these new child care centers, Lois Meek Stoltz is the person he consults. And she is given pretty much free reign to design a brand new innovative child care center for Over 7,000 workers. Wow. I'm assuming he had no idea what she was going to create, but she creates the absolute childcare utopia that we described.
0: World War II represented a massive influx of women who had not previously worked before into the workplace. Now, most of the women in war industries had worked before, Uh, There were about 12 million women, and 9 million of those had previously worked in other industries. But what was new was that middle-class mothers of children were being encouraged to enter the workforce. Of course, poor women and women of color not working had never been an option. But for middle-class women in particular, World War II was a watershed of employment
1: and this is really important because up to this point, there has been public child care available, publicly funded child care, but largely this has not been a viable option. The people who have to, very much emphasis on have to, send their children to child care centers are viewed as only the very poor, the very disadvantaged, or the very irresponsible. Childcare centers are very distinct in the public narrative from nursery schools. Nursery schools are a few hours a day, and they're for child enrichment, and they're for white middle-class women to send their children to. And they are viewed as positive. They're helping children succeed. They're socializing and maybe giving mom a few hours to run errands, but they are for education. Childcare centers are for poor, bad mothers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Lots of throwbacks here also to Marjorie Hillis. And yeah. again, this, this narrative of the way it has always been that we have accepted now is not in any way the way it has always been. Right. Like, this is not traditional by any stretch of the imagination. But the narrative says middle class white women stay home with their children. hmm all the other women have always worked. Poor women have always worked. Women of color have always worked, often caring for the children of the white women in their homes, and that's why they don't need child care centers, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, 30s, 40s, and 50s is like the zenith of all the different clubs in America and all the different mm-hmm. like volunteer roles that these women will take as their kids get right. older. You're not working. No. You're, you're doing charity yeah, work that you're... takes as much time. Right. Like, you're not It's getting all paid. charity. Exactly. And white middle class men's jobs pay enough that that's generally viable uh-huh. for most middle class families to exist on one salary. So this is where the Kaiser
0: shipyards come in. The Sh- Kaiser shipyards were a massive war industry company in Portland, Oregon. And in many ways, these childcare centers have been a model for centers to this day. They ordered special smocks that the children could tie in the front instead of in the back because they were interested in fostering children's independence. They wanted children to be able to feel that they could do as many things for themselves as they could. You know, everything from the physical structures to the instruction at these schools was designed with an eye to be developmentally stimulating and healthy for children. It was really unique in the country. They had not only a nutritionist who supervised the preparation of all the meals to ensure that they were healthy for the children's growth, they had a kitchen that prepared meals that mothers could take home at the end of the day when they were exhausted from working, you know, an eight or nine hour day in the shipyard and take home to feed their families because they recognized that this was an exhausting thing to do, to have to work for eight hours and then go home and cook a full meal for your family.
1: That is so brilliant. I want that now. Where is that? Don't we all? (laughs) Why is that not a thing? (laughs) I know. And this child care center is a spectacular success. The children are so happy. The women are so happy. Everyone knows that their children are being well cared for, Mm. that their children aren't suffering. They feel confident that this is now a net positive for their children. Even if it's only during a war, it's not gonna negatively impact our children. But of course, Lois Meek Stoltz and these other educators who are doing these experiments don't want this just to be during the war. This should be the new model. This should be what childcare looks like. Yeah. And they start creating these instructional pamphlets. That they make available to all kinds of nursery school teachers, early childhood education teachers, creches, which were the, if you're very poor and you have to leave your kid in a creche, like a there will be one woman in a room full of 50 babies. Okay. But they start providing this cheap education via these pamphlets on what could you be doing mm. to make this better? The professionalization of childcare, ah. instead of just treating it as babysitting or Mm. something that you inherently are good at because you have a uterus Uh that this is a professional skill that science can help us do this better yeah and that it should be valued and treated like a professional skill cool it's obvious to us now this was not obvious this had not been a thing that anyone was paying attention to
0: and this was only possible because of the war because of the sense of national emergency and mobilization, that was the only thing that made it socially acceptable for mothers to do this and not be seen, and, and also for the childcare providers to do this and not be seen as creating a, a danger for the children.
1: Of course, it is only available now that it is middle class white women who are expected to go to work. Right. Yeah. We didn't care about any of these problems when it was just poor kids. But now that it's middle class white ladies kids who might be in a childcare center all day, obviously, we have to make sure it is developmentally appropriate. <laughs> so it's it's great, but also predictably, frustratingly elitist. But it's a huge democratization of this thing that was only available in very part time and for a very specific group. It is taking all of the things that that you expect in a rich white people's nursery school, broadening them hugely, doing way more, and making this available to everyone working at the docks.
0: But even child care that was provided by the federal government dried up after 46. There was just not the will to maintain it nationally. And it's ironic because after 46, the number of mothers in the workforce began increasing again and increased steadily for the next five decades. You know, so that by the 50s, there were as many mothers in the workforce as there had been during World War II, but there just were not the same kinds of provisions made for them.
1: And of course, even this narrative of how we think about motherhood and women's work in this era and any time in the late 19th or early
0: 20th century is wildly inaccurate as well. We have this image, and I think that historians have really succeeded in starting to chip away at that popular image, but we have the popular image of this smiling nuclear family of a white Professional middle class father and a smiling stay at home mother, and three children and a dog in a suburban house. And that did describe a lot of families, but it also did not describe a lot of other families. What was true about women's work in the 50s is that for the most part, it was, uh, I'm sorry, I should say about mother's work in the 50s. For the most part, it was part time and it was, for the most part, not. Professional. It was clerical work, service work, what's called pink-collar work. It paid poorly and was not seen as career work or work that was expected to support a family. Women did do this work. It was mostly women whose children were school-age or older because there was a very strong stigma against mothers with children before kindergarten working outside the home. But even that percentage of women was increasing during the 1950s. The jobs they were doing may have been different. Mm-hmm.
1: The idea that you can have a job but not a career, right? You couldn't oh, have anything that's sure. important or valuable or might upstage your sure. husband's work. Or you have can you have like a side hustle at home. You can spin yeah. or, you know, you can make lace or, you know, things right, like that. Right, and all of that, right? The, the whole idea of... Well, until the 1960s, all these women were stay-at-home moms. Oh. No. (laughs) Occasionally, my students will be looking through old census records for a project, and they discover that their great-grandmother is marked as not employed and as a farmer's wife. (laughs) And I have to remind them that in the 1920s, or indeed now, farmer's wives are not watching baby einstein videos with their toddler and scrolling instagram no farmer's wives are farmers mm-hmm. <laughs> they were not parenting they were spinning and weaving and churning and doing the garden right yeah. existing was a full-time yeah. job until the industrial revolution and then they were all working in the industrial revolution mm-hmm. we talked about it differently yeah we framed it differently but no stay-at-home moms existed in the 1930s. Yeah. So, especially with her knowing all of this history, and how ridiculously inaccurate this narrative around mother's work is, Lois Meekstoltz was really irritated with this knee-jerk demonization of women who worked for pay, She was on the Committee on Maternal Employment for the government. She did a bunch of studies of kids with employed mothers trying to figure out what is the reality. Does this actually harm children? Because we're at the peak of this narrative at this point of working mothers destroy their children's lives. Yeah. Thank you, Freud. Yeah. And the neo-Freudians. We see it in everything from TV shows to West Side Story, right? Juvenile delinquents. <laughs> we're at, <laughs> yeah. at the, extremely concerned about juvenile delinquents, and the culprit is always the absent mother who is at work instead of in the home. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this still lingers today. So much. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're still having the same conversation. Yeah, annoying. And that's the really frustrating part. Because, as I mentioned, we know... We have now 80 years of studies on this,
0: lots of them spearheaded by Lois Meek-Stoltz. Members of the Committee on Maternal Employment and other researchers who were not members but who were in correspondence with them all began to do different studies of children with employed mothers, comparing them to children who didn't have employed mothers and trying to hold constant factors that had not previously been considered Uh, Variables that had not previously been considered by other researchers, such as race and socioeconomic status, what they called family intactness, which meant the parents still being married or not. The quality of the childcare, all of these things that impact
1: these results, and you can't just pretend that it's all one bucket. So what'd she find? There is no impact from maternal employment whatsoever on children. And in fact, if there is an impact, it is slightly positive. Ah. And in fact, there is really only one meaningful finding of harm that keeps coming up around maternal employment. And it is this. Is mom doing what she wants? Hmm. If mom wants to work and she's staying home, the children suffer. If she wants to be home and she has to work, the children suffer hmm if we actually care about the welfare of children we should be making it possible for mothers and i would argue for parents to be doing what they want mm. and that's the whole thing being in child care does not ruin children's lives we've proved it from 1945 <sighs> To 2021, over and 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 over again. And And yet we are still having the same arguments. Why?
0: Why? The stigma against working mothers was so deep and so just taken for granted that for a lot of people, saying that working mothers weren't harmful like it just didn't even register
1: the narrative is so important having a stay-at-home wife makes your life much easier for the men which feminists Mm. have been yelling about since the 60s right since i want a wife if you can make women feel bad about having a real job a career job that would require not shoving around the edges right a side gig then men get first pick of all the jobs. Sure. And this comes right back to the part of this story that I think a lot of people do know, the return from World War II. Mm -hmm. All of the men come home from the war, but now all of the women have been filling these jobs. And we have to get these men back in the workforce as fast as possible. Why do we have to? Why can't they just raise the kids? They're available. That's the question that often doesn't get asked. Right. Why is it so crucially important that the men immediately start mm. a job? Right.
2: Why? There's a couple of
1: answers here. Obviously, because the toxic masculine narrative that says men have to work and women should be supported uh-huh. has been operating for several decades and really, really, really psychologically embedded sure. in society's brains and the men's brains. And they don't want to do... The frankly crappy care work that women have been doing for decades for free. Uh-huh. It's hard to be a stay at home parent and you don't get paid. <laughs> and they're not used to doing hard work for not getting paid. <laughs> and the third one is if you have a bunch of men come home from a war and they're all at loose ends, you are at very high risk for a revolution. Yeah. There's a reason the absolute total terror. Of anything that might look like socialism, labor rights, any sort of revolutionary mindset, Mm -hmm. when all of these men come home at loose ends, there's a reason that flares up instantly at the end of World War II. Because it is prime conditions for those things to happen. Sure. The world has been shaken. Everything has been changed. And when everything has been changed, everything can be changed. Yep. And the powers that be don't want everything shifted. So we have got to get these men back in jobs as fast as possible. And that means... Step aside, ladies. Shutting down (sighs) childcare. If childcare is no longer available, the women will have to go home. And that's what happens.
2: Mm. This...
1: Absolutely innovative, brilliant, amazing utopian child care center and other ones like it around the country are shut down. How could she stand it? I, I'm i sure she was absolutely furious. This is, has been her major life's work. Mm-hmm. And now it's just gone.
0: It's really interesting how Betty Friedan uses it. And what's interesting is that she sort of tries to fight fire with fire, because what Stoltz and her colleagues were able to do is provide social scientific authority to push back at this other social scientific authority. One of the prevailing and most widely popularly disseminated ideas of this time period was kind of collectively called momism, which is the idea that mothers who had too much aggression and too much of a will to domination were totally smothering their children, particularly their boys, and tying them to their apron strings so they could never be strong, independent citizens, workers, soldiers. And Betty Friedan does something really interesting. She takes that and she says, yes, you're right. This is a problem. Mothers are doing this and it's terrible. But the problem is not that the women have these impulses of wanting to be strong, forceful personalities. The problem is they don't have anywhere for those impulses to go because they're stuck at home. Now, of course, Friedan, like those other researchers, is ignoring all the women who are working outside the home. (laughs) But we'll leave that aside right now. And she says the real problem isn't that the women need to be more submissive. The problem is they need to get a job. (laughs) And she uses Stoltz's review of the research to make that point.
1: She was invited to teach one course at Stanford University. (laughs) That course went so well that she joined the psychology faculty at Stanford and was promoted to full professor there by 1947. At Sanford, she continued to do groundbreaking research on child development, including a really fascinating study on children who were born while their fathers were away fighting World War II. Huh! She wrote many books that are still very influential in the field today. She genuinely changed the world. She improved the lives of so many children and so many families. She helped lay the groundwork for... A model of education and child care that was exponentially better than that which she had been given. She was an exceptional teacher. And this was how she saw herself. Even after everything she accomplished, touring the country as a speaker and an expert. Working in multiple presidential administrations as an advisor. Hmm. One of the first female psychology faculty at Stanford. A groundbreaker, a pioneer in so many fields. But if you asked her who she was, she told you she was a teacher. Hmm. She was the proudest of that work and of the children that she taught. She kept up with their lives. She was so proud of the things that they achieved. She valued this work that is still so devalued and so dismissed in our society. As the centerpiece of her achievements, she had this huge impact on society And she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. And that's not cool. No, that's not cool. So hopefully we start to fix that a bit. Absolutely. Maybe one of our listeners has Wikipedia editing skills and can go and build her a Wikipedia page. Let's get her up there. Because this woman was remarkable and she deserves to be remembered.
2: I remember once and there was a administrator he would come every once in a while you know maybe once a month or so forth and stop in and i can remember one day he stopped in and i had that day about seven or eight teachers sitting in the back and i remember he came up and whispered to me and he said the little girl in the first row is whispering <laughs> and I said to him, thank you so much. I gave her permission to do it. <laughs> you
1: Huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Moore. If you'd like to learn more about Los Meek Stoltz, you'll find links, photos, resources, and more on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. There you can also become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us create new episodes and get all kinds of great thank you gifts like trading cards, cross-stitch patterns, even your own shout-out in a future episode. We're so grateful for our patrons. We couldn't make the podcast without you. We also have an upcoming trip to Mexico if you'd like to join us on a one-of-a-kind tour with other What's Your Name fans to Yucatan with all kinds of behind-the-scenes access at locations no one else will take you to. Check out our website, whatshournamepodcast.com, and click on Tours. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Aaron Kenny, Esther Abrami, and Kevin McLeod. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Registration is now open on What's Her Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatshournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there.